see almost everybody. All right. Good morning. That's all right. I know we're waking up still. Well, this morning we're going to dive back into the gospel according to Mark. So if you've got your Bibles, I hope we see the value in lingering the gospels uh, uh, for so long because if, uh, if we are to long for Christ, then maybe, maybe giving our time to his life's account uh, is exactly where we should be. So if you have your Bibles, be it digitally or physically this morning, I would ask you to grab them and pull them out. I think uh, I like the more I study the gospel, the more I have questions. I mean, really, I, I just really do. I have a lot of questions, and, and I was talking with Joy this week just about a lot of that, and I think Paul, I mean, I look at Paul and the works he's done in the New Testament. His doctrine is great, but actually seeing the words uh, as they come out of the mouth of Jesus does something more for my soul. Amen? I mean, Jesus is God in the flesh, and there's something about just going to the source, uh, and maybe, maybe it's just the fact that we can. You know, we can actually go and just look at the words of Jesus uh, and just be able to see those things. Because uh, to me, I think often uh, too many times we feel that God is an untouchable God. I mean, he seems so far away, and yet in Jesus Christ, the invisible God becomes visible. His words become tangible. I mean, he's flesh and blood there. Um, I kind of wrote on here in my notes, there's an old hymn called More About Jesus. And these are the words, and, and I hope this is our heart this morning. More about Jesus, what I know. More of his grace to others show. More of his saving fullness see. More of his love who died for me. More, more about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. More of his saving fullness I see. More of his love who died for me. Man, I can't think of a better way or a better thing to talk about this morning than to come and meet and sit down and talk just about Jesus. Amen? Amen. So let's just get started. We're in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Mark. We've been kind of, if you're, if you're visiting this morning, we've been kind of going through the Gospel. And, and on Wednesdays, we go through the Old Testament. So if we're in the New Testament on a Sunday, we're in the Old Testament on Wednesdays. And trying to grab a full picture of the Gospel and what Jesus is trying to do. And trying to educate ourselves with the Word of God so that we can be full of the Word of God. Um, but we're in Mark chapter 3. And we'll start at verse 20. And this morning, as we, as we begin, we'll approach uh, Jesus in our text this morning. And, and, and at this point, he's already picked out who's going to be in his leadership core. And we're not given a reason as to why he picked out these men other than the things that he will say in the future. Uh, for instance, he says, God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And aren't we all the foolish things of this world? And if you don't think that about yourself, you might have too high esteem for yourself. Because uh, this is a problem with the world today. I hope and pray that you don't get sucked up in the all-about-me culture that we do uh, live and, and around. And, and I'm reminded of the words uh, this morning uh, as I'm sitting here was thinking about some of this, uh, this, this all-about-me culture. And because and, and, when Jesus picks out the apostles, it's such like we have no rhyme or reason. And if God chooses the foolish thing, isn't he calling us the foolish things, right? And so if you have a high self-esteem of yourself, you might want to look to the gospel because... God is funny about putting you in your place, and if you've been called this morning by the Lord, you might be the foolish thing that everybody needs to see. But I'm reminded by a, a, a popular comedian, and it was funny when he was talking about it. His name is Jim Gaffigan, and he was imitating the absurdness of the self-culture. And in, in it, I couldn't help, but as soon as he said it, I laughed. And he was imitating the guys who work out in gyms, and they would take pictures of themselves, but it really is just a good 
outlook on the self-culture today. He says, uh, and this is his words, uh, as if he was the person looking at himself in the mirror, taking the picture. He says, I just want to look at myself while I work on myself. I should make a recording so I can listen to myself while I look at myself, while I work on myself, as I leaf through myself magazine and read about how myself can improve myself. Maybe I'll go to my Facebook page and look at photos of myself and read what myself has written about myself. And, and you can't help but laugh, right? I mean, but this is, there's some serious truth to that. And, and, and the reason it's funny is because we all know there's like a cringe little bit of truth to some of that about how it's all about us today and all about an us culture. And it's been advertised to be an all about us culture. And, and this is what we uh, live in. And the thought that comes out of this before we even approach this this morning is, can you be saved if you never pick up your cross and die to yourself? I mean, in a world that is encouraging, encouraging you so much to love yourself, Jesus asks you to pick up your cross and kill yourself. If the humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled, where is our self-exalted culture headed for? These are the things I just want you to think about. And I could go on, but this isn't why we're here this morning. It's a wonderful sidestep. But for now, that's all it'll have to be. If you're at Mark chapter 3, verse 20, say amen. Man, it should have been a whole lot better. I gave like, that was like at least five minutes for everybody to get there. Come on now. If you're not there, get there now. I'll give you a few more seconds. Mark 3, chapter 20. We're just going to read 10 verses. Chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, verse 20. One time Jesus entered the house, and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. But the teachers of the religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against itself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. For this is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. So as soon as Jesus enters the house, the crowd gathers. Now here's one thing that's, I think the greatest evangelical tool today that exists in ministry isn't our marketing and our advertising strategies. It lies solely in the presence of Jesus. If you are abiding in Jesus and Jesus is abiding in you, then people will be drawn to you. Let us be reminded that they are not drawn to us. They are not drawn to our marketing schemes. They are not drawn to our advertising. They are drawn to Jesus and Jesus alone. And we cannot separate these things because the Scripture is very consistent here that wherever Jesus is, there is people who want to be with Him. And they will climb over trees to get a glimpse of Him. And they will put holes in roofs to get touched by Him. They want to be where Jesus is. Now, these groups of people are not coming to sit in another religious meeting like many of the times we've done. They've come to hear the words of Jesus. 
They've come to be healed and to be made whole. They've come drawn by the Holy Spirit to see the work of the Holy Spirit in signs and wonders. This is becoming a foreign work in the church today, and and I think it's shameful. Now, I didn't say that it doesn't exist anymore. I said it's becoming rare. Do not misuse my words there. As I talk with other pastors this week about how to help both now and in the future those who have been infected by weather down south, I couldn't help but wonder. In the days of Christ, people came to Jesus to be healed, never for money. Today, the lack of Jesus in our churches is evident as people no longer come to us for healing half as much as they do come for our money. While we should have a reputation for being generous, and by the way, even to the point of poverty, because like it or not, that's biblical, shouldn't we also place, have, have a place for the works of the Holy Spirit? Wouldn't it be amazing to see the same works we see today as we see in the Bible? Where men, possessed by the Holy Spirit, would lay hands on other people and we would see them be healed and made whole? That when no more, like, you don't need to go to the doctor. Let me introduce you somebody that walks with Jesus and talks like Jesus. And when he lays hands on you, things that Jesus did, you will see once more. Why can't we? My question is, aren't we also filled with the same spirit? Then the logical question is, then why aren't we walking with the same anointing? Our prayer task when confronted with this should be an all-out search party for what's happened. What has happened? Why are we seeing all this less and less? And listen, I think this is where I struggle so much with the frustration of my pastoral peers. There's just too much of a defeated mentality in ministry. You know, they just accept things the way they are rather than fight the good fight to go back and retain those things. We've moved on. Well, I don't understand why the Holy Spirit is not here as much. Well, I don't got time to deal with it because ministry is busy. Ministry is busy. By the way, listen, uh, um, it's exhausting. Ministry can be exhausting. It's tiresome. There's so much. It seems like uh, 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 there's, I mean, like if you think about the use, if you think about what the hurricane has done, it's overwhelming to think of how many people need help. How are we going to do this? It's exhausting. And listen, even in our text today, when we read about Jesus and the disciples, they were so consumed in the work of ministry that the scripture right there said that they didn't even eat. And when you start to think of the work of what needs to be done, where we need to be praying to, to see the Holy Spirit come back into the church like it was in the beginning, if, if, if we long for those things, it would take so much. And how can we when it seems like the ministry is so heavy and so great? These guys, they didn't even eat. The people came first, even before themselves. Literally, they did ministry at the cost of their discomfort. I mean, as soon as it got hard, they didn't go, well, hey, man, we're done because we've got to eat. We're No, they just kept going and going and going. And this is the heart of ministry. This is the life of selflessness. And before we start to wonder if we could handle that, you need to consider also that everything is seasonal. There will be times where the work is plenty. And it will require everything you can give. And it will stress you out. And it will discomfort you. And it will be inconvenient. But it will still exist. It will require your time. It's going to require your, fin- your treasures, your finances. It's going to require your gifts and talents. But there will also be seasonal winters where you'll have time to recover, 
and you'll have time to replenish. You know, once I heard a construction worker friend of mine talking to his wife who was giving him a hard time about all the hours he had been working. She's like, you put like 70 hours in this week. What are you, what are you doing? We'd like to have, have you home for a while. And, you know, one of the things he says, listen, you work while there's work to be done. Because there will be times when it's slow, and that will be the time for rest. But while there's work to be done, we must work. And, and one thing I have learned in business, it's seasonal. There are times even out, you know, I work at Hidden Falls. And right now, from now till March, will be the busiest time of year for us. And nobody complains at all. You know why? Because come April, May, June, July, when it gets super hot, it gets super slow. And then we're like, oh, that was the much-needed break we needed. So you work while there's work to be done. When God sends and pours out the work, you work and you work hard. You keep your head down and you keep at it because the time will come when God will give you relief. And so that's what Jesus does here. He works. He gives himself to teaching and to healing people and the crowd around him in hopes of just a touch or a word of power. They've kind of clinged on to him. And just when things are going well. Right? I mean, like he's in the ministry. He's got his head ducked down. He's working hard. And just when things are good, right? I know it's a little discomfort. I hadn't had something to eat. And uh, I don't know about you, but I can be really mean when I hadn't got something to eat. So praise God, I'm not, uh, Jesus is not like that, right? But, but as these people come in, uh, uh, all of a sudden, a big dose of reality, right? This, this, this family that casts the first stone, a stone of doubt and disbelief, division from literally inside his own family, is where the first arrow comes from. They say he's crazy, right? And why does it come from the inside first? Well, maybe because Jesus once stated that a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, and that's true. It's hard for our friends and family who, who watched us as we grow up and we've made mistakes and we've made a lot of promises we didn't keep. It's hard for them to believe that we could ever be something more. This reveals more about their imposed image of God than it does reveal about Jesus. Their faith didn't allow them to believe that Jesus could be who he said he was. Their image of God was a small one because they didn't believe that this could be possible that their family member could be the actual son of God. It means that they couldn't have believed the story either of the virgin birth. It's a, it's a funny thing to me about this because if, if you've been called at some point or another and you've really pursued ministry, at some point you will experience it. I mean, for me, when I was in Terrell, um, I worked hard in Terrell and I found favor with the pastors up there and they mentored me and took care of me and things. But there were some people there that were never going to look at me as a leader because they watched me grow up. They watched me make mistakes. They watched me be 20 years old, making dumb promises I can't keep, and, and, and with a good heart and great intentions, you know, and, and still not doing everything the way I should be doing it. But I get a second chance when I came down here, my past was left up there, and then everything that got written about me here got to be the man I could be. And I, I got a second chance, but why? Because I left my home. I left the place I grew up, and I've never gone back. And so people look at me differently here. They don't know. And the whole time I'm going, man, but if you knew my past, if you could have seen what I was, if you could have seen that, like, even today, as, as I get ready in the next couple of weeks, I'm leaving for Colorado. I've talked about this with many of you. And, and uh, some of those guys, they're going to they're gonna have a drink or two, and it's okay. But listen, um, 
I'm not going to. And then, then the whole thought, like I've told you, I, I struggle with being an alcoholic means you struggle with always wanting a drink. So I always do want a drink. But then the thought comes, like, especially when I'm away, because now I have to keep my own self accountable. Right. And then the th- I'm going to tell you, like, how terrified I am when I think about even taking a sip of alcohol. Like, there's a piece of me that thinks, oh, man, it's just a little bit. But I know it will tear down everything, everything God's done. It would break the witness that God has given to my life. He's given me a second chance. And it makes me scared. And the reason why is because I'm walking a different walk now. Now, there are some places where I can go. Like if I was to go back to my actual Kaufman, Texas, where I grew up, there's no way they'd believe I was a preacher. They just wouldn't listen to me because of the man I was then. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country. It was hard for his family to understand this. Secondly, the work of miracles is not an easy one to swallow. I mean, come on, Jesus is doing things at this impossible pace to the point where he's not even eating. He's discomforted. He's not eating. He's, he's working at a pace that's incredible. And when he touches people, they're healed. That's hard to fathom, even for us today. That's hard to fathom someone who could walk in the midst where all we did was just touch their garment and they're completely made whole. The fact that he would just keep working like it wasn't a big deal. The fact that he would tell us, hey, just don't tell about anything. Well, then... What, what do you want, Jesus? And I think it was hard for them to understand. And so what do they do? They label him as crazy. And speak the seed of doubt. What do they say? They say he's out of his mind. Jesus must be out of his mind. And when division comes from the inside, it's usually created by those who have a firm foot in human limitations, in disbelief, and in doubt. I mean, because technically, come on, we're human beings. We're not supposed to be able to just touch somebody and heal. I've shaken hands with a lot of individuals that did not get made whole. It doesn't seem like that's a normal thing. That's a supernatural thing. So the fact that Jesus is doing any of this, for some of us, it's hard to to, to understand or to, to really see how this is possible. Obviously, his family couldn't. And I think here's the thing is, as long as we're going to be believers that believes in the Bible and believes in the supernatural God, at some point, we're going to face people who just don't believe it either. And they're going to think, you're crazy. Or my favorite word for crazy these days is charismatic. Oh, you're a charismatic. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. You know, the, the, I, we, I was talking to somebody the other day, uh, and they were asking me about, you know, some of the, the, the things here that have happened. And I said, you know, the strangest thing to me is in the last two years how many job opportunities I've had from Baptist, Methodist, and other non-denominationals around here, a local Highland Lakes area. And the whole time I'm like, dude, you don't want me in your church. Because when I speak in tongues and the old guy in the back who's been Baptist his whole life, he's going to get upset. And are you really going to want to protect me at that point? I mean, because you knew up front that I was Pentecostal, that I ain't going to hide my Pentecostal because it makes your doctrine uncomfortable. You got to know that this is the way it is. This is the way it is with me. And I've had to say no to a lot of ministry uh, positions here locally. And it's the bizarrest thing to me. Like, they're willing, like, which on one side of it, I'm, I'm super happy that they would feel like I would somehow be an asset to the church for, for what they're doing. But on the flip side is, like, just because I don't speak in tongues in front of you and just because I don't run around the church and do the Jericho March in front of you doesn't mean it doesn't happen sometimes. Like, I'm not going to control God. I can't say what will or what won't happen with God. And I'm not going to be the guy who limits God to say what will or won't happen in my life with God. So, yeah, you get called charismatic. You're the crazy one. You're the one not normal. That's okay. That's okay, right? But the key to overcoming this is knowing who you are in Jesus. Jesus was firmly rooted in the Father, and so, 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 so must we. 
if we're going to conquer this kind of test. Not everyone's going to follow us, guys, and that's okay. But we must follow after Jesus. That's what we do. Division from the inside is only one side of this coin. A quick flip, and you'll see the division is attacking him from the outside as well. The Pharisees who are accusing him of being possessed by evil spirits. Actually, they literally said he was possessed by the devil. Jesus can't catch a break, I think. I mean, like in one minute, it's like, hey, your brother's over there saying you're crazy. And then the people that are always giving you a hard time saying you're the devil. Yeah, it sounds like a charismatic church, actually. <laughs> um, Jesus can't catch a break, man. In my years of searching out the scriptures for truth, and, and, and as I've studied so many different doctrines and beliefs, I've come to the conclusion that too many times, too many times, when we often don't experience signs and wonders or many other of the supernatural things of God, we tend to rationalize these things away through Scripture. What we don't understand, we try to make Scripture work to meet our needs. It's the same way that the devil was able to quote Scripture to Jesus, but in a way that perverted the Scripture. We tend to take Scripture, just like they use Scripture. Do you know, believe it or not, there was a church, that, the church, at one time who justified slavery with the Scriptures. Right? I mean, what do you think? We, that just happened? Like, Christianity managed to make its way through the entire early years of America when slavery was going on. You don't think those people were going to church? They were going to church every Sunday. You know how hard it is to witness to probably that area when they was first having to come out of that? I remember reading a, a, a missionary who was a missionary to Indians, and uh, he talked about how hard it was to, to witness to Indians when the, the Watts that went to church on Sunday would come out and drink and party and beat up the Indians and do all kinds of crazy. It was hard to tell them, you know, how, they're not, they don't want to trust a, a white person because how they'd see how we act outside of church. Why do I want church? Look at how your church people act. Why would I ever want to be like that? And he talked about the struggle of that. And that was back in the 1700s, 1800s. Why, I mean, if that's the problem then, you think that's still a problem today? Absolutely it is, right? We invent doctrines to cover our powerlessness. We cry out dispensationalism when the Holy Spirit doesn't do what we want him to do. Division is devilish, just straight up. It, it, it can come from anywhere, too. While we expect it from our enemies, do you really ever expect it from your family? The uncomfortable part is that you're never really aware what the heart is and what it's going through until it's revealed from the tongue. Because it will come out. If there's division in your heart, it's going to come out your mouth. It's just a matter of time. Division comes in the same way we read here. We're belittled, and the attempt is to make our view of God as small as theirs by focusing our eyes back on ourselves. Hey, you're crazy. And then I start to think, am I crazy? Instead of just focusing on Jesus, right? I start to doubt. I start to disbelieve, right? And when we're focused on us, we're limited by what we can do. But when our focus is on Jesus and what he can do, then there's no reason to hold back. Jesus' response to all this is actually formed in two parables. The first one being a military-like strategical response, and the second one being a little bit spiritual. From the military perspective, this first one, it makes no sense for the devil to come against himself. Jesus describes this as a kingdom divided by civil war. I mean, if they're busy killing each other, how are they ever going to advance? Makes sense? By, by the way, this is a good lesson for the church, too. We've got to quit helping our enemy out. I couldn't believe that I found myself this week defending Joel Osteen. All right? Listen, I know I'm not a fan of his poor, poor borderline doctrine. And I view him more of a self-help guru than a preacher. Definitely 
more than a pastor. I, I don't view him as a pastor. But who are we to judge him or his ministry? It's not for me. He'll, he'll stand for judgment one day, and he won't be in front of me. All right? While I will refute some of the things he says, and I, and I will, but being mean to him publicly, how is that helping our, our, our church? How does that help us? How does that help me witness to somebody when I tear down another pastor? I just don't understand, like, how that helps me. Listen, there's some that I think that are wolves in sheep's clothing, and I'll tear them down. And if I think they're hurting the sheep, you better know. I feel always like I'm in the middle kind of when it comes to being a pastor. Like, I'm more of the sheepdog. I was asked that one time. I was like, I'm more of the sheepdog. I'm more of the guy in the middle. There's pastor. There's the, the pastor, and then there's the sheep. And, and when the pastors get out of line, I bite them too. I take care of the sheep, and sometimes that means from the shepherds. That's just how it has to be. But it's not wise for us to always have to do this. Know this, it's like John the Baptist too. I would say that he would have been a loud, mean-sounding guy. But then again, Jesus called him the greatest man born of a woman. And I've heard other guys expound on John saying that what he really had was more love than most people because at least he was honest enough to say it like it was. He was addressing the sin. He was addressing things for how they were. And listen, it's, it's an unfortunate thing. There's a saying that I've heard over the years. I talked about it with joy because it bothers us so much uh, uh, that, that a lot of people say this, that cr- Christians always shoot their wounded. It hurts my heart every time I hear it, and it should break yours, right, that this is our reputation. There's also a song, one of the bands that I like uh, uh, and listen to, and it's an older song for them. It was played towards the late 90s, early 2000, and, and it was called um, A Time-Honored Tradition, and, and the chorus line reads like this. It's a time-honored tradition. It's a Christian band talking about the church He says, it's a time-honored tradition we hold where we build up but tear down our own. Now I know why I never come home. And we wonder why people don't enter our our doors. We wonder why people don't come inside because how can I live up to this? Because if I don't live up, they're going to judge me. They're going to be mean. Well, we would never do that. But I hate Joel Osteen and everybody that goes to his church. Oh, I can't imagine why they would have the thought that we would talk about, about our own. Because like it or not, the churches on the hills up here, they're all our own too. Like it or not, and, and, and to our embarrassment, our doctrine is going to be littled in heaven. We're going to realize how dumb we were and how small we were and how infant-minded we were in our doctrine when we all get to heaven, right? Because as smart as the Pharisees were, how they knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, they couldn't tell you the time the Son of God was going to come. It took three astrologers, uh, 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 Persian astrologers, to figure that out before even the people who called themselves the men of God could. They couldn't even recognize the Son of God standing before them. For all of their knowledge, for all of their work, we cannot become like one of these. The Bible says they will know us by our love for one another. So it's no surprise why people don't enter to the church. It's no surprise what their expectations are when they hear about us. A kingdom divided with fall. We must love and we must learn to love even greater if we're ever going to be able to withstand division. The second thing is the spiritual scenario here. It describes the world as the house of the strong man. And the devil here is the strong man. And who can overtake him? Who can overtake him in his own house where he has rule, where he has dominion? Only the stronger man, which of course is Jesus. Jesus is able to tie him up and free all that has been held captive. And that's you and I. 
We've been rescued by the one who is stronger than the world. Stronger than spiritual forces that are working against us. Stronger than those even from within and without that seek to bring division into the house of God. And the amazing thing about all of this is how Jesus handles this without ever being offended or angered. Now I'm going to tell you, this is an interesting thing to me. Because it, it seems to me when an attack is on you, I, I've seen some, some of you I know. I bet if I cornered you, I'd see a different side of you, right? If I started talking about the things you love and the things you were passionate about, something tells me I'd see a different side of you, right? But in Jesus, this has to be the thing he's passionate about. He's doing what he wants to do. He's saying these things. He's doing the ministry that God's called him to do. And yet from his own family, they come in and say, man, he's out of his mind. And from the Pharisees to the church, right, that doesn't recognize the son, they're like, you're the devil. Wait, wait a minute. The very church I started is calling me the devil? Think about it. Wouldn't you be upset? I think it's reasonable that Jesus could be offended. I think it's reasonable to think he could be angry, but he's not. And I think that it begs the question, right? And then I love it. verse 28 and 29, just one word. He says, I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. And listen, the reason he's not offended because he realizes what? They're not talking about me. You're not talking about me. You, you think I'm doing all this? You think this is all about me? Even, even Jesus says it. You think, you think this is me? This isn't me that you're insulting. This isn't my work. Why? Because what did he constantly say? Jesus always said that he only did what the Father told him to do. And that he only said what the Father told him to say. So if you have a problem with my words, what you have a problem with is the Father. If you have a problem with my works, you have a problem with the Father. You have a problem with the Holy Spirit. This wasn't an attack on Jesus. It was an attack on the works of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is a few, there's a couple different things that it does, but it's the work, basically, it is the evangelism of the good news of Jesus, the Son of God. A couple of different things. You'll, you'll, you'll hear the work of the Holy Spirit when we preach the good news, the Holy Spirit allows us to witness the gospel in ways that we never could, right? It allows us to preach with power so that when I speak the words of the gospel and I talk to you about Jesus, he begins to go through supernaturally. You can't see it happening, but God is already turning your hearts and deciding what is going to be heard and what doesn't need to be heard. How much of it is him and how much of this is me, but God will only let and only open up the heart to what? To what is his. I mean, even now, the work of the Holy Spirit is happening as I preach to you the good news of Jesus, who's come as the stronger man to set you free. This is the good news. The, the work of the Holy Spirit is visibly seen through signs and through wonders throughout the entire New Testament, from, from uh, the Gospels to Revelation, signs and wonders follow all those who believe. Matter of fact, I, I can't remember a time where I remember a miracle happening before I came into the church and got saved. Maybe they did, and I was oblivious, but I don't remember experiencing that many like, oh, that's a miracle. Well, maybe a couple, but I looked back, and I didn't know they were miracles until I, I got saved, and, and like God began to show me in my life like things where God held back things and got things that God did. 
And I think that's what's another thing. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, right? We see the signs and wonders. We see people. If you, I mean, raise your hand. Have you ever seen anybody get healed? I know I have, right? I'm going to tell you the greatest miracle I see today is people get saved. I, I mean, to this day, it is the greatest miracle I know by far that somebody who is able to take their life, see it for what it really is in the eyes of Christ, and turn their, turn their life around in response to it. I was reminded again, I was sharing uh, with Brooks Blake, my boss, and, and uh, was sharing him a little uh, a sliver of Brennan Manning uh, saying um, about God loves us just like we are, not as we should be, for, for none of us are as we should be. And, and we were talking about this with, with Brooks even and, and, and listening to the comments that were coming back and forth, this idea like that God on the, uh, when we get to the judgment seat, what Brennan liked to say is when we get to the judgment seat, God will ask us one question and one question only. Do you, did you trust me when I told you that I loved you? And he says, some will say, yes. And we did our best to shape our life in response to your love. But then he said, some of us will say, no, we didn't. So we worked and we tirelessly beat the plow and we did everything we could trying to earn it. And we struggled and were miserable and we missed out on the joy and we missed out on the peace. Because we never really believed it. We did all the works. We went to church. We, we, we strived and strived and strived and never really fully believed. Never could just walk in it. And so it opened up this wonderful discussion and this whole, the whole thing. And, and, and even in those moments, and, and now Brooks is saved, but even in those moments, like when God like brings us a new word and we hear something for the first time that just quickens our ear a little bit and we know that we're seeing something we've never seen before, that is the Lord. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in that moment. Lastly, the goal of the Holy Spirit is this, to point and to reveal things that point us to the glory of God through His Son, Jesus. Everything that the Holy Spirit will do will exist for the purpose of showing us the person, Jesus, in everything and give all glory back to Him. This is why it's such a precious thing to God, one with eternal consequences. Jesus says, you don't have a problem with me. I'm nobody. There's not a, a self-culture with Jesus. Jesus knows what I'm going to the cross. I'm, I'm headstrong about where I'm headed. I'm going to the cross. I, my, my life is forfeit. I've given it to the Father. I do whatever he tells me to do. I say whatever he tells me to say. You're not offended at me. You're offended at the Father. You're not offended at me. You're offended with the works of the Holy Spirit. You're not pointed these things at me because you see only what? With flesh and blood, right? But we fight not against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities, right? It's not a, it's not a physical battle between Jesus and these individuals. It's a spiritual one. It's a spiritual one with the Holy Spirit. And my question really is, we kind of close this up, is where, where are you in this? What are you facing in life? Have you ever been the cause of division? Have you ever experienced division? I mean, I know I have. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. Uh, and I am so glad I've received forgiveness for them. And I, and I think in those moments, man, I've learned the lesson. I need to treat others more like I want to be treated. I... As I learned, uh, uh, there's a pastor that I've been talking with this year that I hadn't uh, really done a lot of work with in the past few years. And, and uh, just there were some accountability things that I struggled with him, like him, him just not having a lot of accountability. And, 
when I began to reflect back upon his ministry and, and he was wanting to reconnect and and I began to approach him. We had to have some hard conversation. And, and, and part of that hard conversation was like, okay, so when you got in your ministry these, these five, last five or six, seven years, you know, what was going on? Then I started to think, man, this guy's in his 20s. He had nobody to help mentor him. He's, he's kind of been trying to run it solo. And, and all I can think is, man, he's already a better guy in my 20s than I ever was. I mean, I, I just, this guy's in his you know, late 20s, early 30s now, but the last seven, eight years of his ministry, to me, they've been kind of rocky. But then I started looking back and reflecting upon my life, and I thought, man, who am I to judge? He's 10 times. He was so much farther ahead of me that by the time he reaches my age, he'll know so much more than I ever did because he's, had, he's been living and he's been at least trying. And so, like, there's a piece where Jesus came down, and he convicts me, and he says, man, we've got to give this kid another chance. I need to begin to work with him and help mentor him and help do some things with him. Instead of staying away, maybe I need to get a little bit more involved with him and, and help walk him through some things because I realize that, well, listen, we're not perfect, right? Amen. <laughs> what does your ministry look like? Now, you can say you don't have one, but I'm going to tell you this morning, you're the pastor of somebody. You got family. You got friends. How do you shepherd them? By the way, I think we mis misunderstand the word shepherd. Shepherd does not mean, uh, uh, and, I, and I know many of you don't feel like this, but a shepherd doesn't mean they do everything for you. The sheep walk on their own. They do that. You know what else they do? They eat on their own. They drink water all by themselves. Nobody pumps water into the sheep. Nobody force feeds the sheep. All right? You know, all a pastor is is a guide. A shepherd is a guide. My, here's what my, or like if as a shepherd, uh, uh, my responsibilities are this, to scout out green grass, to scout out better water sources or many water sources or multiple water sources. So what? So that we can always have good food and something to drink. So if something dries up here, we're going to the next place to always be aware where these two things are at. Also, for safety, to see something coming that you might not see. Right? I don't come along and say, you better eat right now. That ain't going to work with no sheep. And no matter how much I beat them with a stick, it ain't going to work. Right? It's, it's just not what I'm supposed to do is help show you this, this is good right here. Their water is right over there. You got to live. You need to eat and you need to drink to survive. By the way, it's smarter. My hunters in here know this. It's smarter as a sheep to huddle together. You have more eyes that way. You can see division when it's going to happen from the inside because your eyes on, on, listen, sheep got eyes on the left and on the right. They can see in the inside and they can see on the outside. All right? So you can see division coming or danger from inside and you can see danger from outside. But I'm going to tell you what, if you think you're going to stray away and go, I'm going to, and I have seen this. I remember driving down the road and seeing the sheep. There were like two of them that are off in the woods while the rest of them are out in the open. And I'm thinking the ones in the open, believe it or not, they are more safe than the two in the woods. And I know the two in the woods like, dude, we done found a good piece of grass. This stuff tastes great. They don't know what they're missing. Uh, you, you won't either right up until it happens. Because I promise you the coyote is like, thank, you know what he's doing at the moment? Thank the Lord. God has provided. God provided sheep. Praise God. Right? That's what the coyote's doing. The wolf is doing. Yes. Man, they never learn. Right? And it's the truth. I, as a bow hunter, I've bow hunted sheep. And you're always trying to get one to single out. You hate them when they group up. Because it it's impossible. 
You're going to hurt more than one if you do that. Now, for the enemy, that's, that's probably a great idea, and it sounds like that'd be the thing. But more often than not, one wolf ain't going to take on a whole herd of sheep. It's just not going to happen. He's going to wait for the one that's sickly and the one that's limping and the one that's hurting and the one that's this, and he's going to wean that thing out, and once he gets it weaned out, that's it. And if you're going to help him along by not, listen, I, I'll be the first one to tell you that coming to church is, does not make you saved. We say that all the time in here, probably why our attendance fluctuates. But it's the truth. I'm not going to preach what's not true. It doesn't make you saved. Your works, what you do, does not make you more saved. Jesus loves you just like you are. And if he receives you at your worst, how much more so as your life improves will God love you? I mean, listen, God's never going to love you more than he loves you right now. So there's nothing you can do to earn more love from God. Now, here's what happens. Because God loves us like that, we respond to him in a way like, but Lord, I want to be more like you. Not because it earns me more, because I'm drawn to you to be like you, because your love impresses upon me this desire now to be like that. And, and so this, this change begins to take place, right? And, man, and that's, that's, that's how it works. But, but it's smarter. The Bible in Hebrews says, forsake not the assembling of one another. That's not, I know we preach that. That's why you should come to church. No, it says forsake not the assembling. Like, you shouldn't be opposed to it. Remember, it's for your safety. Like, we're actually stronger when we come together. And in the kingdom, there's only going to be one church. It's not going to be the Baptist church. Well, I'm going to go to the Baptist kingdom. There ain't no Baptist kingdom. There's no Methodist kingdom. There's not going to be no AG kingdom. There's not going to, guess what? There's not going to be a non-denominational kingdom. It's not going to happen. It's going to be one church, and we're all going to live there. And we're going to be so embarrassed about all the dumb, stupid doctrine we had that kept us from what? Loving each other? From being mean to people like Joel Steen that don't have it all together either? Yeah, he's convinced a lot of people give him a lot of money. But you know what? He's lost a lot of influence because of it too. I was saying this the other day. Nobody would be mean about him whatsoever if he paid himself like a modest eighty dollars to $100,000 salary because that would be modest for the size church he has. That would be modest. And he lived in like a... 2,000, 3,000 square foot home, we would go, okay. We wouldn't think nothing about him because we'd be like, that dude could make millions. He gives his millions back to missions. or he gives, if, he, if he did that, like none of us would think twice about Joel Osteen or his doctrine. But because he lives in a 17,000 square foot home and makes multi-multi-millions of dollars and stuff, that's why they give him a hard time. God's not against wealth. Look at Solomon. Look at David. Before we start trashing all that stuff, we've got to think about stuff. God's not necessarily against that stuff because it's not about stuff. They shall know us by our love for one another. How we, how we treat each other says a lot about how big our God is. My God's bigger than Joel Osteen. My God's bigger than the smallest pastor. My God's bigger than all that. My God knows that we're small, that our brain is small, and that we think small because God doesn't think small. God breathes and worlds are created. That, we can't even fathom that. I mean, you know what I'm saying? We're such a small thinker compared to God. God just is like, hmm, one day let's just have a whole solar system. That's it. Done. Day two. You know, I mean, like, ugh. I just got out of bed. Old solar system just came out of his mouth. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, how can we fathom these things, right? Our, our view of God has to increase. 
It has to. And we have got to move forward in keeping our eyes focused on the Lord and understanding that it, we do what he says. We work through what he says. This is what we do. Amen. I'm going to bring Megan up. with us. We're going to get joy and we're going to 